Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How am I doing? You got, do I got sound? Can you hear it? Can't? You got nothing? You got it now. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Let's try again. Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Welcome, and we're really glad that you could be here, and um, maybe some of you, as Ryan said, are here for the first time. Maybe this is your church home. We're just glad that you could be here with us. Um, you know, I, I was saying this week, and with the crazy weather, obviously, um, uh, by the way, we gotta we gotta get this picnic thing in. The meat's been thought out since Father's Day, and we gotta. Is that bad? Just we're kidding. By the way, we're kidding. It was not thought out since Father's Day. Don't make that your excuse to not come. We're gonna have great fun in the rain eating meat. All right. Um, but I was saying this week to some people, I was saying, you know, I've, I've really been enjoying this spring, which I can't wait till the summer comes in September. You know, um, it is finally warmed up and we like to complain about weather and stuff like that. But um, one of the things that we'll see as we get into this, this little story, I was thinking about gardens because we have a story in the Bible today about a garden. Um, a lot of people plant gardens. Uh, we have a very small garden in our backyard. I do almost exactly nothing to help with the garden. Um, that might not surprise you. Um, the only thing that is my job is to put up the little fence so the varmints don't get in there, you know, and eat it. But if you, if you plant a garden, it's a lot of work. Uh, my wife does all the work. And, uh, and, and you know that it's a constant battle. You're constantly out there and you're fighting, uh, whether it's, you know, the weather and all that stuff, but it's insects and it's, you know, rabbits or whatever it is that might eat your stuff, the birds and, and all that sort of thing. And you're constantly fighting to keep them out and so that you can... We have moles in our yard, by the way. I'm, I'm, I am on a vengeance after the moles. I'm losing currently, but... <laughs> We're doing that. Um, but, a, but a garden is an interesting thing. And you look in the Bible, and, and we see as the Bible begins in its story that, that all of life begins in a garden. It's very interesting, really, because when God created man, where did he put him? He put him in a garden. I mean, where would you put him? In a shopping mall? I mean, I mean where would man originate? I mean, all nourishment comes from the ground. You, you may not have read that closely or noticed, but when God made Adam and Eve, he made them vegetarians. That's not a, 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 a saying, you know, you don't have to be one. I'm just saying that's what he did. And uh, all the word meat, as it appears in those early chapters of Genesis, talks about the herbs and the plants of the ground. In other words, God put man in the place where he could eat. And all of life comes from the earth. And even if you eat animal products, animals eat off of the plants off the ground. And so ultimately all nourishment comes from the earth and it comes from a garden. And um, it, I say that only to say that um, it's an important thing when we think about how God started his very story in a garden. And, and here we are in John chapter 18. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open it there. We're going to be reading the first 14 verses. In John chapter 18, we have the Lord Jesus Christ again in a garden. And this garden has the name Gethsemane. And in this story that we're about to read, we have the story of Jesus being betrayed by Judas Iscariot and being arrested by the officers of that time. And that's the story that we have in front of us. Uh, the, the thing that I want us to learn as we look in this story in a garden is about battles in our personal lives. And how we can overcome, how can we fight the battles that surround us every single day? And really, this story has a lot to say about that. And in the course of studying today, there's going to be a lot of Bible verses that pop up on the screen just to kind of save you time. You've got some notes in front of you. But really, I hope you've come prepared to do some study. Because we're going to see what God has to say for us in this story. So if you'll just follow along, I'm going to read for us starting in verse number 1 of John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief of the from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? I love that. 
And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these, referring to the disciples, go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and captains and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. That's a reference back to John chapter 11. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump into our Bible study. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture, really it's rich in the lessons that we can draw from it, and certainly much more than we will even be able to get to in the next while. But Lord, I pray that as we, each one of us, comes before you this morning, each of us bearing our own version of some sort of struggle or challenge or battle, that you would speak to all of our hearts in that way that only you know best how to do. Certainly through your word, certainly by your spirit, but circumstantially very different maybe for all of us that are here. I I pray, God, we read this story and it's just an amazing story to think how the disciple, one of which who followed you all that time and, and fellowshiped with you so closely, would then turn on you and be the traitor and then deliver you into the hands of men who would ultimately take your physical life. I pray, God, that as we read these things, that you would help us to understand how we can respond in the midst of these kind of battles. And I pray that you do it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to see is the attack. It's, it's Judas, and it, and it comes up here. Uh, that, that's who is represented as we talk about this attack. Judas Iscariot, by the way. There are other men named Judas in the Scripture. This is certainly Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus Christ. Uh, there was a time in his life, obviously, for the, the three, three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry where he was a, a faithful disciple. He was one of the 12. Uh, back in chapter number 13, we saw how ultimately he then left the room, Jesus having said that, you know, it, what you have to do, go and do it quickly. He, he's the one that's going to betray me, the one uh, to whom I give the sop after I dip it. And, and so Judas is that one. The, the disciples never really put all that together at the time when that all happened. Uh, but Judas is the guy who he was trusted among the disciples we learned back in chapter 13 that he was the guy who kept the treasury of the funds uh, if you know anything about ministry the guy who keeps the funds got to be trustworthy right and uh, and so Judas was that guy and uh, so the disciples did not suspect that he was the guy who might have betrayed Jesus Christ um, but what we ultimately learned through the through the scripture is that Judas is a guy that although he played the role fairly well for a long time never really gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, all through different places, and we're not going to look at it today, but but when Judas ultimately dies, the Bible says, for example, in Acts chapter 1, how he went to his own place. Uh, Judas was never truly born again. Judas never really knew the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that he knew him and then lost his salvation. Judas was a fake. And ultimately what we see is that Judas sells out the Lord Jesus Christ for personal profit, 30 pieces of silver actually, And so interestingly enough, the guy who kept the money and was trusted ultimately shows his true colors in loving the money more than loving the Lord. And and that's who Judas is, and that's the story. And so if you really want to get the full chronology, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to refer to several verses that come out of Matthew chapter 26. Now this story occurs at some portion in the other Gospels as well, but Matthew gives a very comprehensive uh, account of some of the things that John does not emphasize in his account. And so in Matthew 26, we'll be jumping back and forth and looking at some of that stuff. And what happens is in John 17, of course, we have Jesus' prayer to the Father where primarily it was all about the disciples and the continuing of the ministry through the disciples after Jesus Christ leaves this earth physically. He talks about unity. He talks about sacrifice. He talks about how God would empower and glorify the disciples and use them to carry on the gospel to the whole world. And then he enters into Gethsemane. So Jesus' prayer in John 17 is not the prayer in Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a different prayer. And Matthew 26 records for us, Jesus goes into the garden. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. And they're about to have a prayer meeting. Okay, Jesus prays, Peter, James, and John sleep. As Jesus is agonizing in prayer, 
he is dealing with an entirely different issue. And, and his prayer at this time is about himself and the event that is immediately waiting for him, the crucifixion. And, and so he spends that time. We're going to look at some of these things in a minute. He spends that time crying out to God. He's dealing with this issue that now is the time. Now I have to do the thing that you have sent me to do. He wrestles with the whole human will of not wanting to do that, but yet submitting to God's divine will to fulfill the purposes of God. And that's what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. While that's going on, Judas shows up because it says here in John that that he understood that this was the place Jesus often went to. So he's like, I know where we can catch Jesus. He's probably at Gethsemane. He goes there a lot. And so he goes and he shows up with a mob. He's got this whole band of guys on his side. And it's very interesting because when he shows up, he had cut this deal and he had told them, he said, look, I'll tell you which, because a lot of them were like, who's Jesus? They didn't even know who he was. They're oblivious. And so he's like, look, I'll show you who he is. The guy that I'm going to identify for you, I'll walk up to him and I'll give him a kiss. And so that's the method that Judas chooses. It says Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Now that's very interesting because the kiss, it was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of love. It was a sign of affection. It was a sign of respect. And, and there are places in the scripture, for example, where it, even back in a prophecy, back in Psalm number two, where it says, kiss the son lest he be angry. In other words, this is ultimately even a prophetic thing about people in the last days and ultimately into the kingdom where they will show this respect and honor and reverence to the son of God by giving him the kiss. And Judas uses this very sign as the sign of the exact opposite thing, and that's a sign of betrayal. If you went in through many of the epistles of Paul, you would find that this phrase is repeated over and over again near the end of several of his epistles to the churches, greet one another or greet the brethren with an holy kiss. And sometimes we giggle about that, but in many countries of the world, men kiss men on the cheek, women kiss women on the cheek or whatever, and it's just a sign of affection and care and love and friendship. And that would have been the situation. That's what it is. Now, when we look at this attack that is coming on the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what I want us to get from that. The worst betrayal is going to come from people who are closest to you. The thing that's going to cut you the deepest are going to be people that you've loved the most. The people who would embrace you, kiss you on the cheek, and stab you in the back. That's what we see here. There's different ways that that's played out in life, and I just picked a couple of them to bring to your attention. For example, we use an expression in in military uh, engagement, friendly fire. Now, that's a little different because that's accidental. It's not intentional. But when you are a soldier and you're at the front lines and somebody from behind doesn't recognize who you are and accidentally fires and kills their own people, you're killed by your own. Uh, the, the, the Shakespearean play Julius Caesar has that famous line that many of you would know where he says, et tu Brute, Latin for, and you, Brutus. And so Brutus, the trusted friend of Julius Caesar, goes up to embrace him, stabs him in the back. Literally, that's what that's going on. Well, in the church world, what we have is Laodicea. And those of you that study the scripture and understand when I say Laodicea, it's not just one of the seven churches of Asia Minor recorded in Revelation chapter 3. It represents a time period in church history representing the last days before the rapture of the church, I believe the time in which we live today. And it is characterized by a time of everybody fighting for their own rights. The very name Laodicea translated literally means civil rights, the rights of the people. And never in the history of the church for 2,000 years has it been more predominantly true that Christian people fight for their rights. It's Laodicea. And God forbid that somebody would come along and deprive you of what you think you deserve. A friend of mine said something to me one time and and it it stuck with me and I, I quoted a lot. He said this because it characterizes life in the day we live. Everybody's nice until you tell them no. 
That's, that's deep. <laughs> Everybody's nice until you tell them no. And then see how much they're willing to fight for their rights. It's Laodicea. It's the time in which we live. And so what we have here, betrayed by a friend, is very applicable in the time frame in which we live in human history. It's very applicable that we see that kind of a thing happen. Most all of you know that my wife and I served in the country of Albania for 14 years, and we've been back in the States now for seven years, and that blows me away. And we were recently sitting and just talking about some of the comparisons and challenges of life and ministry in the two places, and one of the conclusions that was very, has been very clear to us is this. Daily life in Albania is just very difficult. It's just a very, very difficult place to live. The, the corruption is rampant, and, and that phrase that comes from the book of Judges, many of you are aware of where it says, uh, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. We would just sum that up as anarchy. <laughs> um, that's very, very evident in a country like Albania. And, and I know some of you are sitting here thinking, well, that's just like it is in America. It's the same here. Uh, can, can I politely tell you it's not the same? Seriously, it is not the same. And, and please, please don't. It's way worse in Albania, trust me. It, it, do not try and make the comparison. Daily life is very difficult on a lot of levels. And what we would find is, is that when a person would give their heart and their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, there'd be this radical change, as there should be, and then it became very difficult as they found themselves in conflict with the world system. And so our primary battle in life and ministry was with this present evil world. But what we've noticed as we come back to the United States is that that's not the case so much. The thing that we have noticed more frequently here in the United States is that our primary spiritual battles are not with the world. They're with the church. They're with the church. It's friendly fire. It's people that you have loved and ministered to and with. It's people that would kiss you on the cheek. It's people that would come and say, you know, I love Jesus and, and, and all of these things and then stab you in the back. And if that's ever happened to you, and maybe it has and maybe it hasn't, can I just tell you, it hurts worse. It does. It, 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 just, it just hurts worse. You expect more from the family. And, and when people come at you that way, and listen, a lot, it happens a lot in, in, where I sit. And, uh, I, you know, I don't tell everybody. I don't tell you all about it. I don't need to. But it happens. And it's probably happened to a lot of you. But that's what we're dealing with. That's what we see here. It's interesting because last week when we finished up chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer, we talked a lot about the theme that goes through that chapter, and that's unity and the importance of being united together as a family. And so it's no surprise that immediately on the heels of that prayer, emphasizing unity among the disciples, immediately we have betrayal from one who used to be one of the disciples. Uh, he's a fake, yes, but he uses his friendship to get close enough to ultimately betray Jesus Christ. There's a Christian music artist that I like. His name is Michael Card. He's a songwriter. And in Michael Card's list of songs, one particular song that he wrote is titled Why. Uh, you can look it up if you're interested. And in the song Why, he deals with this issue. I'm going to read for you some of the lyrics. I will not sing them. It's tempting. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. Only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. That's what the devil will do if necessary. You see, if he can't get through to your life to derail you in the normal course of this present evil world system headed down the wrong direction which, by the way, derails a bunch of people. And if he can't then get through to your life just using your own personal, fleshly, human desires to derail your ministry, which gets the majority of those that are left over if the world doesn't get them. The last and 
most effective and most damaging strategy of all is to infiltrate from within and to send to Judas. And to send to Judas. Judas, uh, Jesus Christ, when he sees Judas come to meet him, if you were to refer in Matthew 26 and verse 50, he calls Judas his friend. And interestingly enough, we see that when former friends attack, they rally a crowd to agree with them. That's what Judas does. He was on the inside, he cut his deal. He went out, and when he's going to make his stand, when he's going to do what he's going to do, before he shows his face, he's already gathered a big crowd. They don't, a lot of them don't even know who Jesus is, but he's gathered, he's rallied the troops. Listen, these guys that come back with Judas, these are Old Testament-believing, pork-abstaining, law-keeping Jews. They think they're serving God. Jesus reminded his disciples in John 16, verses 2 and 3, when he says, They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. So people show up in Jesus' name. They rally troops. They pose as your friend. They stab you in the back. And Jesus says, One thing you can know about these people, they don't know me. They don't know me. I'm not judging anybody. I'm reading to you what Jesus said. They show up with weapons. Matthew's account tells us what the weapons are. Swords and staves, big sticks. They show up with weapons. And so, you know, just practically speaking, a good reason to be united with the family of real, genuine, God-fearing people it's because these other folks are out there. Jesus said, the, let the tares grow up with the wheat. He, he's allowing it to happen at some level. But you know what? If you have the love and the support of one another, it really helps be able to get through it. I mean, it, it, just, it just does. That's an important thing. You can have strong alliances with the right people, and you can gain strength from that. That's how the attack comes in this story. That's how the attack comes today frequently for a lot of us i don't know if you've been through that let's look at the responses and so really y'all just just think about it for a second we're going to look at what it says i mean it's it's pretty clear but if this really happened to you how would you respond right i mean in your flesh wouldn't you just i mean allow me to speak in the first person in my flesh i immediately get ticked right I want to fight back. I want to prove that I'm right. I mean, this is unrighteous the way that you're coming after me. I want to shout from the housetops why I'm right. But that's not what we're ultimately going to see. Interestingly enough, and fortunately, I might add, our life in Christ is to be lived at a higher level. We're supposed to live our life above the fray. We're supposed to be able to live a supernatural life. The natural response is retaliate. The supernatural response is what we'll see Jesus do in just a second. And so our desire is, obviously, to try and do what would be pleasing to the Lord, to try and do the things to respond in the way that would be the most appropriate way. And so not surprisingly, we have two examples of responses in this passage of Scripture. And the first response is the right response represented by the Lord Jesus himself, of course. So I want you to look with me in verse number 4. So they come with uh, uh, lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, they're showing up at night, you know, uh, real bold guys. And they got weapons and a, and a mob. And uh, it says in verse 4, I love this, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, no, no surprises, next two words, went forth. I, I know why you're here. I know what you're planning to do. Okay, let's go. Let's go. And so he knew what was coming. And his immediate response is willing surrender. It kind of goes against the grain. Notice in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, should pop up on the screen. Jesus says this, Therefore doth my Father love me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Notice, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down in myself. I have power to lay it down. 
I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. This mob, I don't care who they are, they could not possibly take Jesus captive against his will. He willingly went with them. He laid down his fleshly, human, personal desires. He surrendered, you might say, his personal comfort, his rights. He had the right to stay. He was right. He is righteousness. Ultimately laid down his life. Why? So that he could accomplish God's will. If you glance down to verse number 11, as he's rebuking Peter, the last part it says, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And you can go back in Matthew and see how he prayed. That's part of the prayer. Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And sometimes just in a casual reading, you would think that as he's praying that this cup might pass, that that cup represents death. But the cup does not represent death. The cup doesn't even represent suffering. Because Jesus came to suffer and Jesus came to die. And it says, as I just read earlier, that Jesus lays down his own life and he's going to take it back again. I mean, it's not death that is the thing that he's agonizing over. The cup that he's referring to is defined for us in many places in the Scripture. I'm, I'm bringing this to your attention as a mini Bible study, but to also try and emphasize to you what exactly it is Jesus is willingly laying himself in front of. Because this cup that he's referring to is literally the wrath of God poured out upon sin. I gave you three references. I could have given you more. Jeremiah 25 and verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of this fury at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. Isaiah 51, 17, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. And then ultimately played out in the tribulation, which is yet future. Revelation 14 and verse number 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus Christ sees the men coming and he knows that it's time. And he's gonna surrender himself to the, to the unjust trial, to the mocking, to the beating, and ultimately to the crucifixion. But the thing that's really got his attention is during that moment when Jesus on the cross, among the seven different things that he says to the Father, we'll get to it eventually when we get to that part of Scripture, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And somehow in the midst of the Trinity, God the Father turns his back on God the Son, and the wrath of God on sin is all placed on Jesus Christ. By the way, that's why we can be saved. The cup. And he says, don't you realize, Peter, I, I've got to drink it. I've got to do it. So we have attacks. We have problems. We have struggles. We have people that come at us. We have things that threaten our comfort, our pleasure, our joy, our protection, our security. And we complain. And we fight. And we do everything we can to preserve this bubble of happiness. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the happiness. Nothing wrong with good things. We work hard to get those things. But we see in Jesus Christ a very, very different scenario. Where because of, most certainly, the will of God, he surrenders those things. Interestingly enough, the name Gethsemane, the garden Gethsemane, if translated, that name literally means an olive press, where you press the olives to get the oil to come out. And what happens in the garden is literally Jesus' life is squeezed out of him like oil. It says in Luke 22, in Luke's version of that prayer time in Gethsemane, that he sweat great drops of blood. And in Leviticus 17, the Bible tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So he's in Gethsemane, the olive press, and he's literally just being squeezed until he's even bleeding. 
So Jesus wins this battle, not later on, not at some point. By the time he comes out of the garden, he surrenders because the real battle that Jesus had was in the garden. The real battle was won on his knees. It was won in prayer. So you see, because by the time Judas shows up, by the time the guys show up with the lanterns and the torches and the, and the swords and the staves, Jesus has already made his peace with God the Father. He's already wrestled with not my will but thine be done. He's already surrendered himself to the bigger picture, the plan of God for his life. And in so doing, by the time he gets up from that prayer and walks back out and meets this mob, he's like, okay, let's do this. I know why you're here. I know what you're going to do. I've already settled it. I have done my battle with the Lord in prayer. Let's go. My will has been succumbed to the will of God, and this is what is now awaiting me. And that's what it is. That's, that is the battle, y'all. I don't know who's coming after you. I don't know how it's hitting you. I don't know if you're in a good time or you're in a bad time. I don't know if somebody's kissing your cheek and stabbing you in the back, or you're just dealing with normal struggles of life that we all deal with. Whatever it might be, can I just encourage you, before you do any of the other things that are on your list to do, and I'm sure you have a list, <laughs> that you wrestle with God in prayer, that you make sure that your will is lined up with the will of the Father, that what He would have for you, that you would not get up off your knees until you finally can say with all your heart, yes, Lord, that's fine. I don't, I'm not saying you have to like it but you surrender to it. So Jesus wins the battle on his knees, but I want you to notice something else. Jesus does not back down on doctrine. He does not back down on truth. I love this. So they show up. Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Boom. You know, they all fall back, right? And you know why that is, right? He's the great I am. If you have a King James Bible, they were honest enough to put he as italicized, meaning that originally as it was transcribed in Greek, it would have been just I am. The he, you know, for English speakers, we don't just say I am. We say I am he. They put it in there. Anyways, he says I am, just like it is back in Exodus chapter 13. Uh, Moses, you know, and he says, Lord, they won't believe me. How are they going to know I represent you? Just tell them I am has sent me unto you. I am that I am, he says in Exodus, Okay. And earlier in the Gospel of John, he says the same thing. He, he, he identifies himself as Jehovah. He stands on, hey, by the way, do you know who I am? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And the power of God shows up in a very real way, and they are literally blown back on the ground. Dust themselves up, get back up on their feet, I guess. And, and so, and I love this. Jesus, by the way, he, he's, he's surrendering to go with them. But he just has to throw this in. Um, by the way, whom seek ye? Now that, by the way, now that you know who I am, whom seek ye? Kind of a reminder. By the way, if you're going to arrest me, just know you are arresting and planning to kill Jehovah God. Get that straight. You can kill me. You can beat me. You can mock me. You can lie. You can do all the things you're going to do. But I will not bow to the fact of you somehow getting away with thinking that you're not doing what you're doing to whom it is you're doing. Never bow on truth. I love that about him. They know who he is. And the amazing thing to me is not that Jesus manifests his deity. That's easy. The amazing thing is that after he does that, man still rejects him. That blows me away. Can you imagine Judas, blown back, gets back up and says, yeah, this is the guy. Are you kidding? Oh, it's an old story. You can go back to Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues in Egypt. And that was Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh plagues the manifest presence of God, and yet he still hardened his heart. And you can go into the future in the time of tribulation. And in the time of tribulation, the nations that will again see the plagues of God poured out on this earth continue to reject. And I have a reference for you in Revelation chapter 9, and, and you can look at that. But ultimately, all these things are poured out on the earth, and it says that these men did not repent 
of their evil deeds, but they just continued in them. In fact, that they will curse God. And God's doing these things to try and get their attention. But what about today? Does any of that ever happen today? (laughs) Has this ever happened that God just makes his presence known and people still reject him? Of course. How many times do people hear from God in a very real way? No, not audibly. Whether you're in a church service, whether you're reading his word, whether you're just living life in circumstance, and somehow or another, God makes it crystal clear to you that you're on the wrong track and you need to be on the right track. And over and over and over again, man, we are wicked, y'all, says, nope. God, you're not answering my prayers the way I want them. You're not working out circumstances the way I want them. I'm done with you. I don't want anything to do with it. And God is doing what he's doing to try and get your attention. How many times people reject the word of God and fall into calamity? They fall into tragedy. They fall into difficulty and they have sickness and they, have, and they, have, they lose jobs and homes to fires and diff- different things. I'm not saying all those things are the judgment of God. I'm just saying they are things that should make us at least consider what our relationship is like with him. So what can we learn from this? Do your battles in prayer. Do your battles in prayer. Until you're ready to submit your will to God's will, that is the real battle. Have you ever noticed how hard it is sometimes just to get down on your knees and pray? Man, we'll just think of a million things on our to-do list that we got to get done, and eventually I'll get around to that prayer thing. That is the battle. And then be willing to surrender your rights. Be willing to surrender your comfort. Be willing to surrender whatever it is that you might prefer if indeed, if indeed, it runs contrary to the will of God. But never, never compromise truth. Never compromise truth. So that's the right response. Jesus Christ, the wrong response is our dear friend, Simon Peter. And so Peter does what a lot of us do. That's why Peter's in the Bible. I just know it. He fights back, and it's the wrong response. He draws a sword. I don't know if you've thought about it. I have. Pete, why'd you draw the sword? Well, if you do a little Bible study, I think you can get a good idea why he drew the sword. Okay, first off, they came to him with swords. You know, it's kind of like your kids. You know, they're fighting among each other, and you're like, why did you do that? He started it right and Pete could have said hey they came with swords and there's a bunch of them I happen to have one I'm on your side and that was his plan that's why he did it interestingly enough you don't go very far back into the chronology and if you were to take some time and look in Luke chapter 22 verses 35 to 38 as Jesus is recounting to the disciples how life is going to be different moving forward, he basically says, do you remember when I sent you out and I said, don't take any extra clothing or anything with you, just, just go, and all your needs will be provided for? Yes, Lord, we remember that. He says, now I'm telling you that you're going to need to gather up some extra stuff because folks aren't going to treat you so good anymore. And by the way, if you get a chance, buy a sword. I mean, Jesus had just told them not long prior buy a sword and they said to him lord there's a couple of swords here and he says that's cool that's enough it's good and so you know here's pete he's thinking they came to jesus just said it's okay to have a sword (laughs) i got me one i'm packing you know (laughs) and not only that in the midst of all that stuff that we saw a while back with the denial and jesus prophesies these look you guys are gonna deny me and and Peter again he's bold uh, he's sincere but he's bold in Matthew 26 35 he he makes this statement and he had just made it just shortly before this Lord though I should die with thee yet will I not deny thee I mean so Pete I mean he's an outdoorsman man I mean he's a rough dude and 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 he's like all right I've been walking with Jesus it's not always easy he told me to pack I'm packing He said some guys are going to deny him. I'm going to prove to him that I won't. And here's the first test, an angry mob with weapons. And and Pete pulls out the sword, 
And, he, and if he's right-handed, he gives it a big backhanded deal. And Peter's intention, no doubt in my mind, was to chop that dude's head off. And dude ducks left, and he clips him right here. There's only one other way that he could have clipped just the ear, and it would have been the fencing parry, you know. That's pretty good. If he'd have done that, maybe, you know, but I doubt he did that. He, I'm thinking Pete's like, you're a goner, and the guy ducks, and boom, the ear comes off. So, you know what? I mean, it's righteous indignation. I'm mad for the right reason. Don't we love being mad for the right reasons? That's his thing, man. I mean, he's saying, look, we're doing this for the right reasons, and he's going to respond. And, by the way, that, guys... That is a man's response. Again, Pete's an outdoorsman. He, he's, a, he's a fisherman. He could take a blade and gut something, right? I mean, kill him in Jesus' name, man. Kill them all, let God sort them out, right? I mean, that's kind of the way we think. It's the wrong response. It's the wrong response. I'm going to remind you of some Bible principles. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Sounds a lot like prayer, y'all. Ephesians 6, 10, 11, and 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Our enemies are not physical. They are the spiritual forces behind maybe the physical people that are manifesting them. If you were to run down the list of the armor of God, and they are various forms of defensive protection on the front side of the Roman soldier, and that's how they're described with their spiritual uh, illustrations as God desire. You get down to verse number 17, and it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the only sword that we really need to be drawing is God's Word in these spiritual battles that God has for us. By the way, if you continued in Ephesians 6 and then you go to verse 18, it goes on and it says, praying always. So that's how we do it. Romans chapter 12, we need to be reminded, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, cuss him out. No, it does not say that. <laughs> Feed him. It's a new version. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. It's a comforting thought. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The battle's in prayer. And that little statement in Romans requires faith. You have to believe that in not standing up for yourself, and as a man, let me just tell you, You feel slightly emasculated if you do this. You feel as though I'm less of a man. Well, as much as Jesus is, (laughs) pretty good company. It actually, in my opinion, and I stand firmly on this conclusion, requires much more strength and courage, men, to willingly surrender. Much more strength and courage. Knowing that there is a vengeance, you just don't get to be the one who does it. God will do it. And to have the strength of character and courage to be able to say no to your own selfish fleshly desires requires much more strength and courage than to stand up and go toe-to-toe and have it out with somebody to the death. Much more. Just try it. So check it out. Peter fights back. They started it. And once he fights back, what does Jesus do? He speaks against Peter. He rebukes him. Put your sword up in your sheath. 
In some of the other gospels, he'll say something to the effect, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. He says, basically, in a word, I got this, Pete. I got, I got this, dude. And, and Jesus just very clearly lays out how there's no need. He's going to handle this. So, so Peter fights back. Jesus speaks against Peter, and Jesus acts against Peter. Y'all, if you look in Luke 22, 50 and 51, what does Jesus do? Jesus heals Malchus's ear. How did he do it? I don't know. He picked up the ear, blew, I don't know, put it on, touched him, and it just grew back. Or he put his hand on the bloody stump. It sounds gross. I'm thinking, just think about it. How did he do it? I don't know. Just for fun. Not the typical miracle you see at the healing crusades on TV. Peter fights back, tries to chop the guy's head off, clips his ear. Jesus says, stop it. Now I'm going to fix what you've blown. I'm going to help Malchus. What are we learning? You retaliate? Listen, it's not your fault. They attacked. It's not your fault. You fight back, and you just flip Jesus on their side. See that? He rebukes you and works against you. Who wants that? Nobody wants that. The intention, obviously, is the opposite. You're thinking you're standing with and for the Lord, right? But now he's acting against you. Your fleshly retaliation causes the very direct opposite result that you intended. That's an amazing lesson. Once you take matters into your own hands to attack others, Jesus works against you. You don't learn nothing else. Write that down. You don't learn nothing else. Learn that today. It's like, it's like this. Something bad happens. not your fault. It comes to you. It's, it's bad. Either you respond or you let Jesus respond. You pick. You get to pick. But you can't have both. In order to let Jesus respond, you've got to do what Jesus did. You've got to surrender. You've got to be willing to surrender. Listen, y'all don't need to defend Jesus. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need you to defend him. <laughs> he can defend himself. He said, I can call, don't you realize, I can call 12 legions of angels. <laughs> This mob is nothing. There's nothing. But religious people are funny people, man. Y'all, people get out here in these holy wars. It's just crazy. I, I lived in a country that was 70% traditionally Muslim. And man, you know, jihad, the holy war. Uh, you, you write a cartoon against Allah or Muhammad, his prophet, and man, I mean, you know how it works, right? The whole terrorism thing. We're defending Allah. You know, no offense. You need to? You need to? Allah can't defend himself? Man, I can't believe you're saying that. This is going to be on the internet. We'll delete that part. No, just kidding. Listen, y'all, you ain't got to defend God. When's the last time he needs your help? People come at you and talk about Jesus this, Jesus, and they're cussing him and they're tearing him down in front of you, man. Do you need to punch him in the face or you just, I'm mean, going laugh. I was like, you'll meet him one day. You know? I don't, what do I got to worry about it for? I'm not dodging truth. I'm just saying, look, I don't need to, I don't need to kill you because you don't love my God. So the lessons are clear. How do we fight our battles? Well, trust God. Move on. <laughs> Don't fight. Rather, pray and do good. That's how you fight your battles. Live that life and you're above the fray. Live that life 
and you're supernatural because the natural is the opposite. Live that way. So there's a battle in a garden. And since all of life began in a garden, there's no surprise that the two greatest spiritual battles in all of human history occur in gardens. The first garden is Eden, where the first man, Adam, representing our first birth, ultimately has to deal with the devil who comes as a serpent. And he deceives using words. And Adam is defeated. Eve as well, of course. As a result of that act, sin and death are passed on to all men because they disobeyed God in eating the fruit of the tree in order to serve themselves. And ultimately, Adam and Eve's pride is manifest. But there's a second garden, Gethsemane, with the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who represents the second birth. And the devil shows up in the form of Judas Iscariot as a friend. And the deception comes through his actions. And unlike Adam the first, Jesus is victorious. And as a result of that victory, life is now passed to all who believe. Because Jesus Christ denied himself in order to serve God and to serve us, by the way. And rather than pride being manifest in that first garden, humility is manifest in that second garden. So maybe you're in a place today where you feel like you're under attack. Those that you thought were your friends have turned on you and they attack you. God is shouting to us today, don't retaliate. You don't want Jesus working against you. But instead, do what he did, pray. Get your heart right with God's and surrender your will to his. See the big picture and wrestle with him until you are done. And when you are done, the circumstances no longer matter. And should the circumstances be such that there are consequences affecting your comfort, okay, give it up. Who cares, really? But don't be so cowardly that you bow on truth. There are dudes all over this country that bounce from church to church to church and change what they believe when they go to these churches just so they can keep a job. God help them. God help them. Don't bow on truth, but don't feel like you need to take the matter into your own hands. I want us to pray together. So if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, we're going to wrap this up. And I want to give you the chance to respond. Because I believe God's spoken to some hearts today. And what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going to sing a song here in just a minute and we're going to receive our offering and all that. And while that's going on, you have an opportunity just to get your heart right with God. And I think God's probably speaking to some people just to come on down front here, get on their knees and wrestle with God for a few minutes and pray. And you're thinking, I can pray for my seat. Well, maybe that's the battle you got to win. Maybe you just need to get up and move. Well, I'm in the balcony. We have steps. The battle is in prayer and in surrender. But maybe you're here and you would say, you know what, Jeff, I'm just not sure that I've got this eternal life thing. And we didn't talk about that today, but let me just assure you, if you're here and you're not sure that if your life were to end physically and you'd have a home in heaven and you'd like to know that, I just want to pray for you. And if you would just honestly, where you're at, just, just acknowledge by raising your hand, say, Jeff, just pray for me. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be saved. Would you pray for me? Is there anybody in the house who would just raise their hand? Just say, yeah, just pray for me. Nobody's going to bug you. Anybody at all? There's some kids over here. God bless you for being on.